sermon outline that says messages and a harvest on it. Have that so you can follow along. I thought that seemed especially thick. Apparently, I printed two copies. Just got to listen to it twice. We are in Revelation chapter 14 today. We're in the, the middle of the book, and we're into all the exciting images and the dramatic things and all the things that we don't normally understand. And so we need to ask God to give us uh, eyes that see, that can see into his word and that we can understand what he's trying to tell us here. Our passage is Romans, or, uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 20. Listen carefully, and sometimes it's easier to listen to images than it is to read them. So kind of listen carefully and try to get the images in your mind. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at these messages and as we look at these Harvests of salvation and judgment. Give us the wisdom to know where we stand. Remind us of what this is all about. 
remind us that the actions of this life have eternal consequences. Lord, help us to see that Jesus is judge as well as Savior. And do this for each one of us this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. When our children were much younger, we lived in the southeast corner of Alabama. And farmland encircled uh, the small city where we lived. In that area, farmland encircled everyone, everywhere. Towards the end of the winter, uh, dust flew through the flatland as the farmers broke up the ground that was hardened over uh, the months after the last harvest. And planting time soon followed with a, a flurry of activity, uh, tractors humming and uh, fertilizer uh, slogging into the soil and corn, cotton, peanuts, and soybean seeds nestling in to the chocolate brown dirt to grow towards harvest. And throughout the next several months, the farmers plowed and sprayed and fertilized and irrigated in hopes of reaping a large harvest. And finally, the harvest time came, and the peanuts virtually broke through the ground as the soil began to crack uh, by the pressure of their growth. The corn stalks grew tall with their golden heads uh, waving, and the ripened soybeans uh, covered uh, waist-high plants. And what I remember the best are those white clouds of tall cotton just sitting by the side of the road. And uh, these huge combines whirled the fields by day and with, uh, actually with bright headlights by night in order to keep the farmers on schedule. Nothing seemed more urgent to the farmer than the harvest. And though things appeared calm for a time, when the harvest arrived, uh, the pace for gathering in the crop didn't stop, didn't let up until everything was harvested. No one loitered. Everyone had a task to perform uh, at the utmost speed to ensure that everything was harvested on time. Now, Jesus spoke a number of parables that related to planting and harvesting. The parable of the sower, or the four soils, in Matthew 13, explains the regenerate heart by good soil and yielding a crop. And then there's the parable of the wheat and the tares, involved both the edible grain and the harmful weed growing together. And Jesus said in Matthew 13, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. And he later explained that parable uh, in that same chapter, which was our responsive reading uh, this morning. And he said, the angels do the work of harvesting at the end of the age. Now these parables, along with others, sort of lay the groundwork for us in understanding the implications of this harvest language in Revelation. Harvest implies an expectation of the end, that all has been planted and everything that's growing will culminate one day in a great harvest. And when God determines the harvest is ready, then both those who are declared righteous in Christ and those rebellious against him will suddenly be harvested. The righteous to know the eternal joy of being with Christ and the rebellious to experience the terror of God's eternal wrath. How soon the harvest will be, no one uh, knows, but uh, its certainty is without doubt. Part of what this passage is telling us is we must be ready for the harvest. So let's return to our context once again uh, to make sense of this passage. Remember that John is addressing uh, suffering oppressed believers in Asia Minor. Uh, they felt the heaviness of the Roman Empire against them as Christians. Uh, some were struggling uh, with temptation to give in to the world, to kind of go light on their Christian faith and strong on compromise with uh, emperor worship and immoral practices and even being marked by the sins of the world. So John has exhorted them through the gospel, to bear up in the strength of Christ, to realize what was happening among them, to not give up, but to press on in faithfulness, to realize that Christ loses none of his flock. 
And they can only do this if they understood the end. So John takes them and us to the end with certainty that the great harvest lays ahead of us. And he wants them and us to be ready for the harvest. So with that understanding, let's turn to chapter 14. At the beginning of this chapter, we were given a glimpse of the return of Christ and his army at the end of the world, a picture that will be fully fleshed out when we get to chapter 19. And with that picture of heaven fresh in our minds, John's gaze is directed back towards earth. And the first thing that's put in front of us is a message of the gospel. A message of the gospel. That's the first uh, blank in your outline. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Although the gospel is addressed throughout the book of Revelation, the actual term gospel is only used here in the entire book. This is the last proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. And John is going to demonstrate that the gospel is a sharp two-edged sword. And before he's given visions of the last judgment, he sees an angel calling all men to repentance while there is still time. The message is to those who dwell on earth, which is John's characteristic phrase for unbelieving people. Now there's a debate as how we should understand this announcement of divine judgment as gospel or good news. How is that good news? Well, the completion of God's plan for the world, a plan that includes both salvation and condemnation, has already been described as good news in chapter 10. Perhaps what John intends uh, for us to think is that it's obviously good if God's perfect uh, plan uh, gets fulfilled in history. There's good in the judgment of those who deserve judgment, and there's good in the salvation of those who believe. Perhaps he means us to understand that the gospel is always a message of salvation in Christ, and here the world is being given a last chance to hear that message, believe it, and be saved. It's possible that verse 7 is viewed as an evangelistic appeal to those who worship the beast uh, to instead turn and to worship God. And that would give the book of Revelation a gospel emphasis. It would be keeping with such passages as 2 Peter uh, 3, where we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The eternal nature of the gospel shows that it transcends seasons and centuries and ideologies to speak the truth of God to all humanity. The gospel is not just for a small group of uh, seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. The gospel is given for the whole world because it's an eternal gospel. It bears eternal accountability for all humanity. Everyone, it says, uh, in every nation and tribe and tongue and people has a responsibility towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John calls attention to this accountability when he refers to God as the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and springs of water. He's not as the dragon who we saw back in chapters 12 and 13 has no power to create, but only to deceive and destroy. God created the earth that we enjoy, but he's not an absentee landlord. He calls us into accountability to the eternal gospel. If you think about it, he's showing us tremendous kindness to a world of rebels by offering us the good news of the Savior, Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. 
And so after the first angel announces the gospel to proclaim, calling the world to fear God and to give him glory because the hour of judgment has come, a second angel arrives with a message of judgment. A message of judgment, starting at verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is the first mention of Babylon in the book of Revelation. It will by no means be the last. And here it's used as a, a figure for the unbelieving world, the citadel of paganism, the symbol of a world organized in opposition to the kingdom of God. Probably used because in the Old Testament, Babylon was one of the great enemies of Israel. Babylon makes a natural title for a world arrayed against the kingdom of God. And in this context, Rome served as Babylon for John's readers. But it's the consistent message of Revelation that all unbelieving world systems deserve the title Babylon the Great, both for their pride and their rebellion against God and for their eventual fate. And Babylon's promise of wealth and pleasure to intoxicate the world will at last prove to be simply deceitful. A lot more is going to be said about Babylon and her fall when we get to chapter 17 and 18. But chapter 14 introduces judgment language to us. One angel announces the hour of his judgment has come. A second angel announces the fall of Babylon, indicating divine judgment, orchestrating its fall. But who will be numbered among those judged by God? Who will face the wrath of God? And the third angel comes and gives us clarification. Those sealed by God, symbolically having the name of God and the Lamb written on them, cannot face God's wrath for one reason. The Lamb has already absorbed the full measure of God's wrath on behalf of the redeemed. He drank the cup of God's anger for us. The righteous God cannot judge where judgment has already fallen upon his son at the cross. But those are not sealed by God, those not redeemed, but rather marked by the beast, will face God's wrath. And in describing that situation, we have the strange phrase where unbelievers are told that they will have to drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Now, normally in those days, wine was mixed with water to make it more drinkable. But God's wrath would have to be drunk full strength, unmixed. Now, in the Old Testament, God's wrath is often linked to drinking a cup of bitter wine. But here, there's no sobering up when one has drunk the wine. The effect, as we read in verses 10 and 11, lasts forever. And mixing his metaphors, as John does a lot in Revelation, uh, he refers to the destruction of the unbelieving world, the very similar image as was used for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Burning sulfur, fire and sulfur. If you have uh, one of the older uh, English versions, it says fire and brimstone. That's where we get that phrase. And burning sulfur is both very hot and it produces a nauseating smell. And the words remind us, I think, of the words of Jesus about a fire that is unquenched and the wrath which abides. He's speaking in Mark chapter 9. And he's talking to his disciples and he's trying to talk very practically 
to them. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter life crippled than with two hands uh, to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Right in the middle of that, talking about uh, what you should be willing to sacrifice to stay out of hell, he uses this phrase, to the unquenchable fire. So we have all this imagery coming at us here. The wine of God's wrath. The cup of his anger. Hell, unquenchable fire. Fire and sulfur. The smoke of his torment. And we can't think of this imagery as literal, but it's pointless if it's intent to convey the idea of punishment that will never end isn't understood. It says it will go forever and ever. It's the same expression used of Jesus in Revelation 4, where he's described as the one who lives forever and ever. In 2 Timothy 2, the word forever is used to describe the eternal nature of the glory that awaits believers. If the word forever means without end, when applied to the future blessing and glory of believers, it must follow, unless you're told otherwise, that forever also means without end, when used to describe the future punishment of the lost. <coughs> but the most interesting thing here is the presence of the Lamb and his angels before those who are being punished. What's that about? I think most likely explanation is it reveals the fundamental nature of man's sin. These people are offered salvation in Christ and they turned it down. And we have to face this fact. Man's adamant refusal to accept God's love is the fundamental reason for his judgment. And they suffer in full view of the lamb who stood ready to take them to heaven, but they wouldn't have it. Remember, these striking images of judgment and destruction and suffering are just that, images, symbols. Shouldn't be taken literally, but the punishment they represent is a literal punishment and should be taken very seriously. The two words used here to describe God's judgment used throughout the book of Revelation and quite frankly throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament are God's anger and wrath. And they refer to God's passionate displeasure with human sin. And of course, God's anger is untainted by all the defects of human anger. You know, this anger participates in all of God's other attributes, his justice, his holiness, his goodness, his wisdom, even his love. It's God's fury to be sure, but it is not like us, a mere uh, temper tantrum or a loss of control. But as everywhere else in the Bible, it is the inevitable expression of God's justice and holiness in the face of man's sin and rebellion. Remember, he's reminding those who have professed faith in Christ, but they seem to be faltering in the churches. You know, there's some there who've, who've said that they're going to follow Christ, but they're struggling with the temptation to compromise with idolatry. And he's saying, take note of the world's end. The mark of the beast indicates a spirit of rebellion against God. And it characterizes those who spurn the grace of God. See the end of those who are marked that way. Eternal danger awaits all those bearing the mark of the beast. Be careful not to cast your lot with the world. Its days are numbered before God's wrath falls on it forever. You need to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're either going to be sealed or marked. And then notice what it says about those who are condemned in verse 11. And they have no rest, day or night. This is very different from what the saints are told. They're very clearly given a message of rest. Verses 12 and 13, a message of rest. 
Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is the second time we've seen that phrase. We also saw it back in the middle of chapter 13. Some older versions translate this word endurance as patience or perseverance. In fact, some believe that our doctrine of the perseverance of the saints gets its title from this verse. And John is saying that endurance, perseverance, is needed right at this moment. It's when we come face to face with the reality of divine wrath, knowing that we deserve the full measure of holy wrath to be poured out upon us forever, and yet not for any goodness on our part, but God chose us out of the corruption of the world, not sparing his own son, but sending the full measure of his wrath upon the sinless, holy lamb so that we might be saved. Here's the motivation that you need to bear up under the strain of persecution and oppression and adversity. See an empty cross. See an empty tomb. See where the Son of God became. Uh, look at the cross. See where the Son of God became the object of his own father's anger and wrath. Consider the wrath that you deserve, but the lamb bore it for you, and then persevere. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary called Triumph of the Lamb, writes, Here we are called to endure, not despite our enemy's power, but because of their future destruction. What is perseverance? The word literally means to bear up or to endure. And John calls it the endurance or the perseverance of the saints. Distinguish it from any other kind of endurance. It refers to those who've been set apart by a new birth, being sustained by the preserving power of God, continuing in faithfulness to God. Because they're kept by the power of God, because as Philippians 2 says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And those generally in the faith keep pressing on. They may falter along the way. They may even fall. They may even fail. But in the end, none fails who are kept by God's power until the final redemption is accomplished. And John carries this further along by citing the second of seven Beatitudes here in Revelation. We read, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. John uses the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. Blessed literally means a multiplied happiness, which brings out the superlative condition of death for those who are in union with the Lord. That stands in sharp contrast to the suffering at the hands of those with the mark of the beast and the wrath that the beast's followers face. Although the martyrs would especially find this promise uplifting in the face of death, it's not limited to them. It's for all believers. It's for all who are in the Lord. You know, our society treats death as if it robs us of life. And for the unbelieving, I might agree, because they face an eternity of wrath. For the Christian, though, death ushers us into this increasingly deeper dimension of life without the presence of sin, amen, and with the presence of Christ. You know, all the unbelievers have to live for is in this life. So death robs them of any future joy or pleasure or happiness, but not so for the Christian. That's why so many of those throughout church history who've been martyred for the sake of the gospel have welcomed death with open arms. And if that seems morbid to you, then think more upon this beatitude that looks at the Christian's death as multiplied happiness. And in contrast with those that bear the mark of the beast, we, were, we read back there in verse 11, they have no rest, day or night. But those dying in the Lord find rest from their labors. It's a direct contrast. For the faithful, there's rest. For the unfaithful, there's no rest. 
and it says they find rest from their labors. Labors implies uh, toil, uh, working arduously and exhaustingly and wearing uh, toil. And the context it seems to uh, try to encourage believers who are living under this uh, regime of oppression, under the strain of the opposition coming from the beast. And whether it's ministry or occupation, when we seek to be faithful to Christ in the face of the world's glaring opposition, the Holy Spirit promise us, uh, promises us rest. It says, And then it says, for their deeds follow them. What deeds? Good deeds, I would think. Doesn't really explain it. But if the context is following God or not following God, rest or no rest, judgment or salvation, seems that the deeds would have something to do with that. The deeds are deeds of salvation. It's gospel versus judgment. Your deeds that are related to the gospel... Simply telling others about Jesus. Those will follow you. And if you think about it, if those deeds have names and those people respond to the gospel in faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, they will follow you. They will be with you. It's a wonderful promise. Along this line, we read uh, Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So we have this dramatic scene with these messages but we move from hearing messages uh, from the angels to seeing them in action. We move from messages to harvests. And here we have the harvest of salvation and wrath, starting at verse 14. It's the harvest of salvation and wrath. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's one harvest. Seems to be a standard harvest. I, I, I think it's a grain harvest, and it's reaped and gathered. But starting in verse 17, we read, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This vision introduces us to one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And he's seated on a cloud. It's another clear allusion to Daniel chapter 7, where it says... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This is the third time that we've seen this sort of direct reference to Daniel 7 appear in the book of Revelation. And of course, Jesus himself spoke much the same way. Son of man was his favorite title for himself. It's the one he used the most when describing himself. And he spoke much the same way in Matthew chapter 24, he said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
His identity, Jesus Christ, has been revealed to us already in the opening chapter of Revelation. And here he comes as king, hence the crown, and in judgment, hence the sickle. These Christians who are about to suffer persecution by the beast can take some comfort from the certainty of his doom. And they can be assured that their faithfulness to the Lord will have its reward. And the dead here are the martyrs, those who suffer for their faithfulness to Christ. And the fact that the angel comes from the altar means that the prayers of the saints are about to be answered. But here to conclude the chapter, we're given two final summary visions. A first harvest vision describes the ingathering of the saints, who remember back in verse 4 were described as first fruits offered to God. And the second harvest vision is one of the judgment of the unbelieving world. It seems to me that the harvest of the grain is an image of the ingathering of the saints, while the harvest of the grapes is an image of doom to those who don't believe. And the judgment here is described using the metaphor of a harvest. Behind the imagery lies Joel uh, chapter 3. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And then we read these last two verses, which are kind of difficult. It says, so, uh, the last two verses of Revelation 14. So the angel swung a sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great, great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The spreading of blood for 1,600 stadia, uh, which is actually uh, 4 squared times 10 squared, so approximately 184 miles or 300 kilometers uh, from the city, is the approximate measurement of Palestine from its northern borders of Tyre to the southern and western borders with Egypt. And it singles, signals a comprehensive judgment of Palestine. But more likely, it signals a way of describing worldwide judgment. The imagery is that of unbelievers being judged outside of the true city of God. And once again, it's a compilation of two Old Testament passages. Remember, the way we understand the images in Revelation is by seeing how they're used in the Old Testament. And have that passage from Joel, which we just read, and also Isaiah 62, or 63, verses 2 and 3, where it says, Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments, and stained all my apparel." That image is going to come back to us full force in chapter 19. And however gory this imagery might be, it's meant to convey the seriousness and the judicial nature of punishment that awaits unbelief. This battle imagery is depicted as symbolic of the hostility that will exist between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman until the end of time. But the victory is in no doubt it belongs to the Lamb. I know some of you uh, have been to Rome and you have stood in the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican. And if you were there and looked at the uh, altar, the giant wall behind it, you saw Michelangelo's The Last Judgment. It's a magnificent fresco that adorns the altar wall of the most famous chapel in the world. And you see there the bodies that are being raised from the dead and others are being cast down into hell with the Lord Jesus Christ in the center executing his righteous judgment. And if you saw that great painting, you know, there's so much to admire about it. You know, the artistry, the technical skill, the commitment of one of the greatest painters of all time who spent five years of his life on that one single painting. But I think there are precious few people 
among the multitudes who stream in and out of the Sistine Chapel day after day after day, who view that impressive painting as an artistic image of what is soon to come to pass in time and space and what might represent their own fate on that day. I think most people just look at it as an amazing painting. They don't look at it and say, wow, judgment is real. It's serious. You know, what we have before us in the 14th chapter of Revelation is an account of the last judgment and God's visiting of doom upon those who rejected his son, rebelled against his law, and turned away from the creator to worship his creatures. You can't take up this subject without first admitting the obvious. People nowadays, especially in the West, don't take this seriously. You know, we, we know how alien... How utterly strange this sounds to people today, whether it's couched in the uh, dramatic imagery of apocalyptic literature as it is here in Revelation, or it's described in a straightforward manner elsewhere in the Bible. Relatively few people in our world believe in the last judgment. And even fewer really believe in it and take it seriously and ponder it and live under the vision of it. I mean, if you think about it, our world worries about a lot of different things. We worry about terrorism and the economy. We worry about health care and finding a cure for various diseases. We worry about the environment and global warming. We worry about crime. On a more personal level, we worry about our jobs, our children, our bank accounts, our health, our relationships, and so on and so on. We worry a lot. And many of the political and social pundits of our day even some of them worry about the moral decay, if not the moral catastrophe that's overtaking our country. But what we don't worry about as a people is the last judgment. We're neither alive or awake to any realization that at some point in the future we'll have to answer to an all-knowing, all-holy judge. And this judge will assign to human beings punishment according to their just deserts and assign those punishments according to his standards of right and wrong, not to their standards, not to their friends' standards, not to the society's standards. But we don't worry about that. I think that pretty much sums up the prevailing mood in our country in regard to our lives, in regard to our moral failures as a people. We don't think we're going to have to give an account for that to anyone. We don't expect that we'll either be judged or punished. We don't expect that our works will follow us right up to the judgment seat of Christ. We don't expect that we're going to have to answer for what we've done that we shouldn't have done or what we failed to do that we should have done. And the interesting and telling fact is that phenomenally important as this conclusion is, with so much resting upon it as it does, most people who have no fears of a last judgment have actually thought very little about the question. They haven't seriously considered the arguments for or against it. They live their lives unconcerned. But if you were to press them and ask them why they don't expect their lives to be brought under judgment, most would likely uh, say that they simply don't believe that such a thing could ever happen. In truth, most people object to the very idea of a last judgment, a judgment that results in people facing the music for the lives that they have lived and being punished by God because he was seriously displeased with their lives. It's an idea that offends them. And people nowadays find the notion of impending judgment. You know, that's a violation of our freedoms, our, our right to self-determination. Hell, in modern Western thought, is undemocratic. It's a violation of my civil rights. And all of this makes complete sense and is absolutely convincing to the modern mind, shaped as it's been by a tolerant, relativist, non-judgmental, pluralist, and pleasure-seeking spirit of this age. And the last judgment, as it's described in the Bible, 
doesn't fit into this worldview at all. I understand that. But that's a very different thing from saying that there won't be a last judgment. The last judgment is described in the Bible as a sudden catastrophe that breaks upon the world and takes it by surprise. And there's nothing in our experience that makes that seem impossible. I mean, catastrophes dot the history of mankind. Unwelcome surprises meet us at every turn. The Hollenbecks are in London because a volcano erupted and filled the sky. You know, if you read history, we encounter life and even civilization-ending judgments again and again and again. That there should be one final such catastrophe may be an unpleasant prospect, but it's hardly unbelievable. In fact, if you think about it, people worry about just such an event all the time, although they don't attribute it to divine justice, but to uh, rampant disease or nuclear war or global warming. People believe all sorts of things. And if we know anything about people's beliefs, we know that they tend to believe what they want to be true. That's why it's easy to understand why most people uh, think there's a heaven. And almost everyone thinks that he or she is going there. A substantial majority of people believe there's a hell. And almost no one thinks that he or she is going there. And we can understand why people might think that God's judgment is incompatible with his love. But it bears pointing out to those who object to divine judgment as a contradiction to divine love we would have no thought of a God of love were it not for the God of the Bible. And it's the Bible that teaches us that the God who is love is also a God of judgment. That he holds both men and women to account for their thoughts, words, and deeds, and he will punish those who live in rebellion against them. The only God of love that there is is also a God of judgment. And more important is the fact that God has so clearly, emphatically, repeatedly revealed his intention to judge the world. That doctrine is placed supremely in the mouth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our salvation. He hasn't left us wondering. He's told us straight away that we have to answer for our lives and our behavior towards him and towards others. And he's published the standard, the scriptures, according to which we have to answer. I mean, why should I struggle against sinful desires when those desires are so powerful and so constant and so relenting? Why should I refuse to give in and struggle throughout my life to do what's right and what's pure, what's honest, what's faithful, what's loving? There's a lot of reasons, but they all pale in comparison to this. The day is coming when you'll have to answer for your life and your choices and your behavior, and your treatment of others, and your reverence for the God who gave you life. And when you're standing before the lamb that was slain, none of your arguments, none of your excuses, none of your extenuating circumstances are going to matter at all. You will be judged, and you will be condemned, and you will gnash your teeth because you were warned by the word of God and the light of nature and your own conscience, and you ignored the warning. And worst of all, you will stand condemned in the presence of the Lamb who was slain and who offered you eternal life as a free gift. What might have been had you not ignored the gospel when it was proclaimed to you? It's the tragedy of the last judgment that it might not have been so. That is the Bible's first and last word about it. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. In other words, it's not too late to be saved. Never forget that while on the cross, Jesus became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin, the very object which God hates, the very object which God punishes. But listen to the very next two verses, 1 Corinthians 6. Working together with Christ, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's not too late to be saved from the wrath of God. God, in his great mercy, sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners by dying in their place on the cross and rising bodily from the dead. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And over against this terrifying news that we've fallen under the condemnation of our creator and he is bound by his own righteous character to preserve the worth of his glory by pouring out eternal wrath on our sin, there is the wonderful news of the gospel. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The death of Christ is the wisdom of God by which the love of God saves sinners from the wrath of God, all the while demonstrating the righteousness of God. And if the most terrifying news in the world is that we've fallen under the, the condemnation of our creator and he is bound by his own righteous character to preserve the worth of his glory by pouring out his wrath on our sin, then the best news in all the world, the gospel, is that God has decreed a way of salvation that also upholds the worth of his glory, the honor of his son, and the eternal salvation of his chosen people. He has given his son to die for sinners and to conquer their death by his resurrection. And therefore, the only question at the end of the day is this one. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? You need to answer that question. And then you need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for again revealing Jesus to us. There are those of us here who need a new perspective on life, this side of heaven. Enable us to really see. Enable us to focus on Jesus. And enable us to respond in faith and repentance. Use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you, who believe you, who follow you, no matter what. And we ask for you to do this good work in us. In the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.